6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Well, we're working our way through the epistle of Jacob to the 12 tribes. I always love to do that because I get this good quizzical look from my biblical friends. And uh, Jacob, of course, um, is Jacobus in the Greek. It's Jacques in French. It's Iago in Italian, Diego in Spanish, Yaakov in Hebrew, and James in English. And uh, so it is more commonly known as the epistle of James. And uh, there are many Jameses, four at least in the scripture. Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, his brother John, of course, is uh, very, very well-known, brother of the beloved disciple. He was slain by Herod right after Pentecost. We don't believe this was written by him. A couple of other Jameses, I won't go through this each time, we've, we've, we've covered this, but we're obviously, we hold the view that this was the James that was the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not a believer until after the resurrection, as the scripture tells. We do know that Jesus had a number of brothers and possibly sisters listed in the scripture. Uh, that uh, this that James became not only a believer after resurrection, but rose to be the one of the primary uh, leadership in the church in Jerusalem. And Paul, in his letters, even refers to those that came from Jerusalem as having come from James. He, there's an identity there that is quite uh, significant. James could have been written very late or very early. Either way, it has its supporters. Um, late couldn't be later than 62 A.D., where uh, James himself was martyred. But it, um, in fact, his martyrdom may have been one of the precipitating events in the rebellion that ultimately led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There are some scholars that believe this letter, though, may have been written very, very early. There are, are uh, scholastic arguments both ways, and uh, not, not a great moment for our, our rather cursory review. It was written to the 12 tribes. James was Jewish. That's why I like to call him Yaakov. And uh, he wrote to the, his letters addressed to the 12 tribes. And notice there are 12. Ten aren't missing. All 12 are there. And that myth of the 12 tribes we dealt with in our earlier session, but just be sensitive to that. James was very Jewish. His readers were Christians, but very Jewish in large measure. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not for all of us, just as the, all the epistles are to all members of all the churches. So um, there are about 60 imperatives in the letter to James, in 60 imperatives in about 108 verses. And so many of us may take the snippets, the sound bites of these imperatives, and fail to really grasp the thrust of what he's really trying to get across. We shouldn't just carry away from this epistle a lot of do's and don'ts. If, if so, we miss the point. In fact, many have. Many people regard James, the letter of uh, James to be in contradistinction to Paul's letters. And each, both Paul and James in their own ways, deal with faith as the key doctrine in the Christian life. And clearly it is. Faith is, uh, we're, the sinner is saved by faith. We must walk by faith. 
And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And whatever we do apart from faith is sin. So that's clearly plenty of scripture there. But faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of the consequences. And that's really what James is going to focus on. Paul, we tend to see Paul as speaking of faith leading up to salvation. Faith that uh, James is talking about is proof that you have been saved. So it's not different. They just have a different emphasis. And uh, faith is not a feeling that we work up. It's not an emotional thing. It's the confidence that God's word is true. But that if that's true, then we should be acting upon that word um, to bring a blessing. And it's our walk that is our testimony of our faith. And that's really what, in a number of ways, James is going to hammer away at. And what he's really going to ask, in effect, is the kind of faith that doesn't produce manifest fruit, can that save you? He's arguing not that you're saved by works, but that if you have a faith that's saving you, your works will bear witness to that. That's really the point he's going to get across. Widely misunderstood. Those that argue that there's a contradiction between James and Paul fail to have grasped the message of both. Because Paul says much the same thing. It's amazing to me as I stand back looking at what more than 40 years of Bible studies and and seeing controversies come and go. It's amazing to me how many difficulties disappear if you start from the premise that these 66 books, although penned by more than 40 guys over thousands of years, are an integrated message. Once you accept, for whatever reasons, that it's a package, tightly engineered, And once you go at it with the confidence that it all ties together, you discover it does tie together in ways that are breathtaking. And it's one of those things that um, you can't accept from me. That would be a big mistake. You need to discover for yourself. But recognize the reality that it is an integrated package, that every detail there has had the benefit of supernatural engineering. Once you take that position and try to unravel how it ties together, these problems all go away. These problems that I've seen, of whatever kind, all seem to spring from some kind of lack of confidence. Well, Moses didn't really write Genesis. You know, that kind of thing. Did he really? On the other hand, if uh, you believe Jesus Christ, he said he did. If you believe Jesus Christ, you know, you don't have any problem with the five books of Moses. If you believe the gospel of John, you've got no problem with the integrity of the book of Isaiah. In John 12, he quotes from Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 and says that same Isaiah. In other words, he ties that all together as written by the same guy. So if you accept the words integrity, you don't waste your time traveling down these scholastic uh, rabbit trails. Uh, that make fine Ph.D. theses if you're trying to get a degree from one of these liberal uh, seminaries, but destroy faith. Destroy faith. There is a book out that attempts to tie the Shroud of Turin to the torture and murder of Jacques de Molay in the 13th century. It weaves together a whole bunch of legends, myths, and maybe some real history, about the Knights Templar and how they really found the treasures of the temple back in the 12th century, and that became the funds for the European whatever, and, and that these guys... Uh, anyway, gets into the whole Masonic roots and all of that stuff. But aside from all that colorful background, 
It also weaves this whole tale that the real church teachings were by James were hidden and then later rediscovered by the Knights Templar and that Paul had really, he was a usurper upstart that created Christianity as we know it. It goes through all this stuff. It's so um, embroidered with pseudo-scholarship that someone who has a weak faith could read that and it would totally undermine their perspective of the New Testament. It's amazing. You're going to run into all kinds of that kind of thing because uh, Leighton's pulpits are articulate and uh, continuing. All of these things have their refutations. You want to take the trouble to peel the onion, you'll find each one of these things can be shredded with good scholarship. But boy, the energy and time you waste and the risk and danger of falling in quicksand in the meantime uh, is uh, tragic. It's tragic. And it's funny, it fascinates me, whether, whether your anxieties are scientific or whether textual or doctrinal, it's amazing to me to discover how many of those just evaporate when you recognize the integrity of the total package. So spending effort girding your comprehension of the integrity of the package gives you an insulation to all this nonsense that's flying around. Um, anyway... Last time we, in, uh, in the last half, chapter 2 that we took last time, James talks about three kinds of faith. He talked about dead faith. Faith that, you know, can this kind of faith save a person? Faith that works. Can it save a person? And even Calvin, John Calvin said, it, it is faith alone that saves us, but it's faith uh, that justifies us. But faith that justifies is never alone. Calvin saying the same thing James is, that if you have a saving faith, you're saved by faith, but if your safest faith is saving you, then it will manifest itself in fruit. Now, so James is calling for authenticating actions to prove you really have the faith. So he talks about dead faith. That's a scary thing. Can faith be dead? Yes, indeed. There are many people that have the vocabulary. There are many people that have the intellectual assent. Are they saved? Well, how do I know? Only God knows his heart. I won't pass judgment on that, but I can. We're not called to inspect gifts. It's called to inspect fruit. It takes a second example. Dead faith. He talks about demonic faith. I think he did this deliberately to shock his listeners. You know, the, you say you believe. Devils also believe and tremble. He gives the devils more credit than many parishioners. Because they not only have intellectual assent, they got an emotional response. The devils shudder. That's interesting. There are probably many Christians that believe and they also shudder. They may even roll on the floor and do other interesting things. But, but uh, that's not the issue. Because are, de- are the demons saved? I don't think so. The third kind of faith is that which not only has intellectual assent and emotional response, it has a response of the will, commitment. And the mind understands the truth, the heart desires the truth, but the will acts on the truth. And uh, then he, uses, he used a couple of examples, in fact, very contrasting examples. He used Abraham very prominent person, a Jew, and very prominent in the scripture, and he uses him as an example where his works demonstrated the faith that saved him. And it's not saying that the works saved him, he's saying that the faith was manifest by the works. And then the other example he takes is a, a rather intriguing one. It's a contrast to Abraham. He takes someone that's a minor person, that's a Gentile, that's of ill repute, <laughs> contrast to Abraham, namely Rahab, and uses her as another example. And it fascinated me, and we closed last time as we looked at Hebrews 11, which is so well known as the Hall of Faith. It goes through sort of a, it's just a survey of the Old Testament, all these great people of faith. And that's where Abraham and Rahab and all these are mentioned. And it's interesting. 
If you go through Hebrews 11, relabel in your Bible with your own little note, the Hall of Works. It's the Hall of Works. The list of people there. It describes how great their faith was by the works they did. One of the things I'm, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to go through the book of James, or Jacob as I like to call it, I do see seeing faith overemphasized at the expense of works. We are so uh, fearful of falling into legalism with good reasons. Paul talks plenty about that. But we, I think, have failed to really embrace the fact that we're also called to obedience. And that's what James is attempting to deal with. And that brings us, of course, to chapter 3, where James is going to talk about the world's smallest and largest troublemaker. And they're both one and the same. The biggest troublemaker in the entire world is the tiniest troublemaker. The tiniest is the biggest, the biggest is the smallest. He has so far, in chapter 1, he talked about the mature Christian as being, a, being very patient in trouble. Chapter 2, he talked about the mature Christian being practicing truth. <laughs> in chapter 3, he disqualifies all of us by saying the mature Christian has control over his tongue. His tongue. Now, we did t- touch a bit on the venomous nature of uh, gossip in one of our earlier sessions. Uh, James opened the the door to my tirade about gossip here a little while ago, a couple of sessions ago, and you thought I was through talking about gossip. But uh, James has a lot more to say about this untamable member of our being. It was in James 119, remember he said we should be swift to hear, slow to speak, and uh, slow to wrath. And that's, uh, that was a preamble. He was, we're just getting warmed up. And James, and a few verses later, he emphasized that the believer who does not bridle his tongue is not truly religious. And he's using the word religious here in a positive sense. We're going to discover when we get to chapter 4, both in the first verse and verse 11 and 12, that his gang must have had, the people he's writing to must have had some really rough meetings because he talks about them fighting and screaming at each other. And you, can, you can just get a glimpse at what their, what their uh, board meetings must have been like, the church that, he's, the, that they're talking to. But uh, one of the things we should really reflect on is the power of speech. Its power is very positive in terms of prayer, praise, worship, and leadership. But it's also capable and prone to lies, deceit, and manipulation. You know, it's interesting. You and I, when we're first born, we have a very, very high input rate. If you take the way we gather information, our eyes, most conspicuous, eyes, ears, proprioceptive, whatever, the bit rate going into our brain, into our computer, can be measured in the millions of bits per second. The bandwidth of, of, of three-dimensional to a double image input is enormous. The output rate is very, very limited. It's measured. The input rate's measured in the millions of bits per second. The output rate's measured in the thousands of bits per second, much smaller. Which means that our brain, has, as we grow from an infant, as we grow, is programmed to do enormous, be enormously effective at summarizing, putting things together because of that imbalance. Our input rate is far higher than the output rate. But as we explore our output rate, constricted though it may be, it is primarily verbal. 
even those that are fast on the keyboard are discovering the software around where you can talk and it'll type it for you. They're finally getting that working pretty well. The output rate of our mouth is very, very high. It's our most fluent form of expression. Even though body language and other things are important, our ability to output is uh, primarily verbal. And with that, we do major damage. Major damage. James is going to deal with this whole issue with six pictures to highlight three uh, basic powers of the tongue. In the first few verses, he's going to talk about the power of the tongue to direct. He's going to talk about a bit like on a horse, horse's bridle, and he'll talk about the rudder on a ship. He opens up in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, and by that he means teachers, I believe, knowing that we shall, we shall receive the greater condemnation. You know, for more, probably about 30 years, I taught Bible studies. And if you listen to my old tapes, you'll know I took great pride that I'm not a teacher. I took the posture that all I was trying to do is get you to do your own homework. And I, and I used to quip about that a little flippantly, saying that I read about what James said about teachers, and I'm not a teacher. I just want to stimulate you to do some learning. Big difference. I have to, you know, yield to the truth, obviously, especially, the, I think, even probably then, but also in these years, I have to admit that my, I'm going to be accountable as a teacher. And that's scary, because I know there's many times that I'm not necessarily correct, even some positions of the past that I've revised in some, to some measure, that accountability is of concern. So if you're teaching, whatever you're teaching, not Bible or whatever, you're in a position of accountability as well as responsibility. And so then he goes on, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. And I'm sure he's speaking hypothetically, because I don't... Any perfect men here? Can I see a show of hands? <laughs> now, incidentally, he's going to talk about the tongue, but I think he's speaking broadly. I don't think he would exclude the pen from the spoken word. And I have to tell you, I just have to get this off my chest, I find myself staggered at the stuff that gets mailed through the federal mails that masquerades as Christian newsletters, attacking, openly, libeling members of the body of Christ. You know, Matthew 18 has a very explicit procedure uh, for people who have a bone to pick of some kind. It's not public. I guess I'm sensitive to this because for several decades, two or three decades, I taught the Bible, but as a layman, as a hobby thing. I, I made my living and my full-time profession was as an executive. Putting companies together, whatever, doing all the usual things people do, whether, you know, uh, as professional executives, professional directors, what have you. And my Christian life was personal, and it was hobby or, or lay, if you will. About seven years ago, I switched gears, where I started doing this full-time. And the Lord's blessed that, and I believe he's called me to it, so that's all great. But I have to tell you, the adjustment I've gone through emotionally, ethically, really bothers me. I had less ethical problems in the secular world than I have been confronted with in the last seven years. People not keeping their commitments, people saying falsehoods about people in print. If it was a secular world, I could have made a fortune with lawsuits. Don't do that in the Christian world for lots of reasons. First of all, 
some of these uh, do them a favor by giving that that much visibility. <laughs> really, you know. Uh, but the libel and the slander that is commonplace within the so-called Christian community staggers me. In the secular world, they're not all peaches and creams. They're rough and tumble guys there. But they're smarter than that in general. There's low life there too. But I mean, the real winners may not be moral men. Don't misunderstand. I'm not building a, putting a pedestal. But they've learned the efficient, effective way to win is to have some principles and ethics that you operate by. They may be slow to give a commitment, but when they give it, you can count on it. Anyway, he argues that you can tell the person by his words. If a person has control of his tongue, you can probably get, James is saying, he's able to bridle the whole body. The flip side, I think, is what he's also saying. When you, when you encounter someone who can't control his tongue, it should raise substantial doubts about the rest of his character. That's what James is saying. And that's another reason why, as Christians, our mouths are so important. And how many times have you seen someone that you may respect in this Christian situation for many reasons, and then you hear him say something that just punctures the bubble? A slip of the tongue or something that, that uh, it's still forgivable. I'm not trying to build a you know, legalistic case here. But how, how, you know, how, how that destroys his testimony of his walk and the rest. Verse 3, Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. In other words, he's drawing an analogy here. How a small piece of metal in a bridle can control this big, powerful animal. Which but for the those arrangements would be wild and dangerous. And yet, handled properly, he's not only not dangerous, he's controllable, useful, productive, what have you. He's, he's drawing an analogy here. Words turn into deeds in ourselves and also in others. This is probably one of the great tragedies of our entertainment media. The entertainment media executives say that our entertainment mirrors the population. Nonsense. The percentage of murders and rapes and immorality on the television is way out of proportion to the, that in the population, as gross as our population is. No, that's nonsense. We're implanting ideas. We're making those things seem common. There's a... Well, I won't start on that one. <laughs> um, verse 4. James continues, Behold also... You know, he used the bit as an example. He's going to use a similar kind of example. He says, Behold the ships which, though they be so great, and are driven of fierce winds... Yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. I don't know if you've ever been to a big shipyard. You, most of us are familiar with boats, you know, in a lake sense or something. The size of the rudder compared to the boat is pretty modest. What's really amazing, when you see an ocean-going vessel in dry dock, here's this huge, huge vessel. Take a look at the rudder. It's, it's, it's big in absolute terms. It's trivial in terms of the size of the ship. And yet that rudder is used to control the ship. In storms, cross currents, high winds, it's amazing. You know, just to realize that the helm, which is what controls the rudder, is, is uh, that modest. And what he's saying here, again, he's drawing that analogy of the tongue. You know, during the Second World War, you've probably seen posters. Uh, Loose lips sink ships. They also wreck lives. Betrayal of a confidence. The innuendo can do huge, huge damage. It's interesting how the bit and the rudder can control, uh, can overcome, in effect, uh, contrary forces. 
the wild nature of the horse or the winds or currents, of, if you will, to, that would drive a ship off course. But um, a runaway horse or a shipwreck, of course, can mean injury and death to pedestrians or passengers. So these things are small in contrast to what they're controlling, and yet they hold the destiny uh, far out of proportion to their weight or, or apparent uh, uh, significance. I think what James is saying is just a few words at the right place at the wrong time can affect the lives of an accused, his family and his friends. They can place a nation at war or they can redirect the lives of a child. How even a yes or no or a nod or something at the right moment can influence an entire life. Let's take the other side. Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts 2. He preached. He spoke. And 3,000 people found eternity. Were saved through that. On April 21st of 1855, Edward Kimball went into a Boston shoe store and led a young man to Christ. His name was Dwight L. Moody. When you start talking about this kind of thing, you, know, you quickly discover, you quickly find yourself leapfrogging all through the book of Proverbs. It's amazing to me. It was amazing to me. I thought I was familiar with the book. It was amazing to me. I realized how much of the book of Proverbs deals with the tongue. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Proverbs 15.1. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 12.22. In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. Proverbs 10.19. Well, okay, so these are two of the six. The bit and the rudder. Now James takes two more to demonstrate the power of the tongue to destroy and uses fire and beasts as his two examples in the next few verses, 5 through 8. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store, or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.